you have a Bible, I want you to ask, actually do find three different passages of Scripture. So uh, be finding 2 Corinthians 4, Luke 4, and Acts 19. 2 Corinthians 4, Luke 4, and Acts 19. If you've been uh, along with us these Sunday mornings, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke. And we've come to a particular place in the Luke's Gospel where I feel like for this morning, we just need to get a big picture of something because it's going to begin to pop up over and over and over again throughout the rest, rest of Luke's Gospel. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that's where we're going to begin. Who knows what uh, Luke's occupation was, what he did in his day-to-day time. He was a physician, but he understood that what ails humanity is not something physical, It's not. It's actually something spiritual, and we're going to talk about perhaps the most significant spiritual sickness that humanity suffers from. Now, if all you had was a Bible, you didn't have any other books, you didn't have any commentaries, you just took the Bible itself and read it from beginning to end, and that's all you had to go on, your conclusion would be this spiritual issue is significant. Because the Bible talks about it over and over and over again. So I'm going to go on and tell you what the issue is. Then we're going to get some diagnosis. And then, Acts 19, here's the fun part. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that teaches when this spiritual issue is overcome, what it looks like. Here's what the spiritual issue is. It's idolatry. If you just read through the Bible, start in Genesis all the way through Revelation, it's going to come up over and over and over and over again. Well, start with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Here's his conviction. Paul's ministry was founded on the conviction that it's God's word that is truth. So you don't tamper with it. It says, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Here's what the Bible says about those who are perishing. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Quick pop quiz. What is the goal of the God of this world, as he's referred to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Elsewhere referred to as Satan or Lucifer. What's his goal? The scripture says, to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, if you're going to blind somebody's mind, one of the key strategic ways of doing that is to simply get them to focus their sight, spiritually speaking, on something else. It's blindness, but the focus will be on an idol. So we'll talk about that in just just a moment. Just so we're all on the same page, if you're going to compete... In a sporting event, you usually do some scouting, right? If you're going to play football, you scout the defense and so on and so forth. Now, this is much more than a sports competition. The scripture says our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's the spiritual forces of darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness. What's the goal? If we're going to do some scouting again, not to be redundant, just so we're all on the same page, got one primary goal, to prevent people from seeing the light of the gospel. 
What's your primary goal if you're a believer in Jesus? To see the light of the gospel and to, uh, and to invite others to see it as well. Paul says, For we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. You hear that? We don't proclaim ourselves. We don't proclaim how great we are or how this, that, or the other. We proclaim Christ. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you seen the light of the glory of God? Does it shine in your heart in the knowledge of Christ? Well, that's the goal of the enemy. So let's go to Luke chapter 4, where we were last week. Just read a few scriptures together. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. We studied this last week. We won't go into great detail. But when you run into a demon-possessed people in the Bible, at times you find them, for example, we'll get to this in the Gospel of Luke, a demon-possessed man who's chained down in the cemetery. And that just seems to jive with what we would think would be true, right? A demon-possessed man, that's where they most likely could be found. Out howling at the moon, chained in the cemetery, cutting themselves. That's legion in a few chapters away from Luke, but uh, from chapter 4. But in Luke 4, here's a demon-possessed man, and guess where he's found? He's found in the worship service. He's found in the synagogue. He's found in the weekly assembling together of people who've come to read the Bible together. It says, that's what it says. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them when? On the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Everybody say the word authority. Authority, right? It's going to be a key word for us. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? As we studied last week, the answer to that question is what? It's yes. As a matter of fact, I have come to destroy you. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon was terrified about Jesus' preaching, Jesus' power, Jesus' purity, and Jesus' purpose. That's last week's sermon, so we're not going to rehash it here. But I just want you to see that the demon-possessed man of all places is at the worship service. So before we just move right along, uh, we, we want to camp here for a moment and study the scripture in a little bit more detail. Because one of the strategies of the enemy in blinding the minds, as he said his purpose was, apparently isn't always to make them never go to the worship service. In fact, sometimes people can be blinded in worship, particularly from worshiping in places that don't proclaim the gospel. Now, prayerfully, that's not the case here. Our aim is to proclaim the gospel. But in Acts chapter 19, if you'll flip with me there, we'll see a city. You ready for this? An entire city where the forces of darkness are being overthrown. Now, Luke writes the gospel of Luke and the, and the book of Acts. And so several instances will come together on a Sunday morning and we'll study situations where there's spiritual warfare going on, where Jesus will confront demons. As we go on and finish the Gospel of Luke, if we go on and study the book of Acts, it'll keep popping up over and over. So, so I want us to see, we've already seen, the goal is to blind the minds and then when people's minds begin to be unblinded, if that's the right way to say it, what begins to happen in a city? Here's a quick question. Is it a desire of your heart to be in a city, in a place where the 
forces of darkness are being overcome, where, where the forces of wickedness are on the run. That happens in the book of Acts in the 19th chapter in a city called Ephesus. So we're going to see what has happened there, and then we're going to see some of the responses. And here's the cut to the chase. You ready? When the forces of darkness are being overthrown and the light of the gospel is being seen, the idols are being removed. That's just a quick Bible truth. So, for our application, if the gospel is going to go forth in power among us in this church and in this city, what results is that idols begin to come down. We'll look at the Ephesus, and then we'll talk about the place and time in which we live. But before we go too much further, let's just give a definition to idol. Because sometimes we'll think of idols, and what we think it means is some statue that somebody in some far-off land is bowing down to. Let's just give a quick definition of idol. Idol is anything in your life that has supreme value that is not God. The simplest way that we know how to, how to say it. Idols, what they really are, are replacement gods. They make promises that God makes, but the problem is they cannot keep them. They demand devotion and loyalty. They demand your time. They demand your, well, very life. And if you're not careful, ultimately your, your soul. That's what an idol is. An idol is a replacement god. I like what Tim Keller says. He says... An idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. Now, what's the very first command of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other what? No other gods. At root, what we're talking about is idolatry. Because here's the, here's the reality. If you can break that first command... All the other commands are just going to follow suit. Adultery, murder, lying, stealing, bearing false witness, not keeping the Sabbath holy, taking the Lord's name in vain. If idolatry comes into your life, then all the others will follow suit. So, uh, keeping with Luke being a physician, let me just briefly give us all a spiritual diagnosis. Sometimes you have a physical. Well, this isn't a physical. This will be more like a, well, I guess you'd call it a spiritual. Here's just three, three things. It's a kind of an idolatry test, if you will. And it's always uncomfortable to talk about idolatry because it starts to get to the root of who we really are. So I've got three words for you. going to give them to you. And then by God's grace and by His Spirit, if we allow Him to search us, to know us, as the Scripture says, to, to, to draw near to us, search me and know me. If there be any wicked way in me, reveal it. So here's the three things. They're all going to start with the letter A. Isn't that fun? First of all is, what gets your attention? What gets most of your attention? What, what is it when you can think about whatever it is in the world that you want to think about, what is it that you think about? What, what do you prefer to set your mind on? Uh, what, what, what do you find most of your attention devoted to? That's number one. Secondly is, another letter A, is your affection. What just gets you excited? What, what if, uh, if you're going along and, and uh, you overhear a conversation? What is it that they be, can be talking about that, that really piques your interest? 
uh, somebody's talking about a, maybe a sports team or a TV show, and did you see this last night, and so on and so forth, and, and that comes up, and then all, all, automatically you just want to insert yourself into the conversation. Nobody's making you talk about it. It's just what you want to talk about. It gets your affection. It stirs you up. It draws you, draws you in. And then thirdly, last letter A, is, is the word allegiance. In other words, what is it in your life that you'll put everything else on hold for in order to invest in that? Now, if you, uh, uh, what, what's not on the back burner, right? What, what, what is automatically on your to-do list? Now, here's the things we have to do, but when we talk about the want to, here's my I want to do this today list. What's number, what's number one? Now, you take these things. Uh, attention, affection, and allegiance, you add them up. Most likely in your life, you're hitting on the same thing on all of those. And you want to know what the definition of that is? That's God in your life. Whatever that is, whatever has the affection, whatever has the attention, whatever has the allegiance. Now, however else we want to define the issues, that's, that's what's supreme in your life. Now, it can be good things. We'll talk about some, some, some idols that can be good things. Children can be idols. Family can be idols. Uh, and then there's some really destructive and harmful things. In Ephesus, there's a particular idol that when the gospel comes there, comes crashing down. And quick application is there are some people who don't want to let go of their idols. And it can be a fight to the death. And spiritually speaking, that's exactly what it is in your, in your life. It's something that competes for your allegiance, affection, and attention. God says, I will not share my glory with another. He says, you, you, you leave everything behind in order to follow me. Well, here in Acts, Acts 19 is the city of Ephesus. I want to give you a little bit of background about the city of Ephesus in the ancient world. The political capital in that day was Rome. It's where the emperor reigned. That's where the senate was and so on and so forth. The cultural capital was, well, it was Athens. That's where the philosophers were. That's where the universities were. Interestingly enough, we have a fairly similar situation in our own country. The political capital is, of course, Washington, D.C. That's where the Congress is, the president is. It's where the monuments are and so on and so forth. That's the center of political power. But a cultural capital is really New York City. It's where all the marketing is. That's where every television show is set and movie and so on and so forth. Now, Ephesus is not Rome and it is not Athens, but it's a city of significance. If we're going to compare it to a city in our own day, it'd be a regional capital along the lines of perhaps Atlanta, Georgia, Phoenix, Arizona, Chicago, Illinois. None of those cities are the political capital or in their own way the supreme cultural capital, but in the region that they're situated in, you know, if you're going to have a conference, you're going to go there. That's sort of how Ephesus was in that day. The economy was booming. A lot of people of diverse backgrounds were moving in. And Ephesus was sort of the uh, it city to be in. I mean, if you are young and in college, you graduate, they say, what do you want to do? Say, well, I'm going to move to Ephesus. They got jobs there, cultures diverse, and so on and, and so forth. And it was also home to a huge tourist des- destination. And that was this temple to Artemis, the Disney world of its day. People would travel from all over the place to go to this temple. Now, who is Artemis? Well, Artemis is a goddess, a fertility goddess. And just to be a little more specific, the background, anyway, is uh, fertility. 
goddess, all the agricultural uh, farmers would pray to the fertility goddess so that they would have what? A good harvest. And when you have a good harvest, what do you also have? A nice profit. And the greater the harvest, the greater the profit. So over the course of time, the Greek goddess Artemis became the Greek goddess of, of money. That's what Ephesus is all about. Now here's the problem. It's not a problem. Here's the good thing. Problem for the unbelievers trapped in darkness is Paul came and preached the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, many people began to turn away from the idols. Artemis had great influence and power. In fact, in those days, they would even make child sacrifice to this Greek goddess Artemis. And another thing that had happened in Ephesus is a meteor. Y'all hear about the meteor from Russia, that shower that had happened? Well, in, in these ancient times, a meteor had fallen out of the sky into Ephesus and had fallen as a huge rock. Now, they had taken that rock, and that's what the, that's what the uh, temple to Artemis was. They said the, Artem, uh, the, <clears throat> the rock looked like Artemis. It's kind of one of those, uh, you ever been to an art gallery where it's like uh, abstract, you kind of got to squint your eyes to kind of see what it, that's kind of what you had to do with the rock. I mean, it's kind of, this looks like a rock. But somebody sometimes said, that looks like Artemis. And they all said, okay. So they put the meteor in there. And that's what this huge temple was all about. So you'd pay your money, you'd go in, and you'd see the, the rock. I guess you couldn't take a picture with it in those days. But you got to go home and tell your family, I saw Artemis. That's Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Now, <clears throat> the gospel, anytime it's proclaimed, it always confronts idolatry. If any time in your life as you're pursuing Christ, you don't bump into this, that's, uh, uh, that, that can be an issue. Christ exposes idols. Acts chapter 19, verse 20, uh, 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Hold your finger in verse 23 and then look in chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased. Do you see that? Two phrases. About that time, there was no little dispute concerning the, the way. And then 20 verse 1, after the uproar ceased. So this confrontation with idols, it's an uproar. It's, it's no small disturbance. When the light of the gospel comes, first of all, the idols are exposed. And secondly, <clears throat> the idols are confronted. Uh, there, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, he's a businessman, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So his business is, is making little uh, uh, Artemis statuettes. You can't take a picture with Artemis to go home and tell all your friends, hey, I got my picture, but you can buy this little statue. So then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, so they're going to have a business meeting. Men, you know that from this business we have our, what does he have? Wealth. We're bumping into, an, we're bumping into a real significant idol. In fact, if you want to boil it down a little bit, here are the three most significant idols in the world. Money, power, and sex. Those are the three huge idols go down the road to another temple, that's the temple to Aphrodite. He said, well, we're not crazy like them. We don't build statues anymore. But those idols persist. Will we at least be able to agree on this this morning? Those idols continually are strong in our culture. So, so in Ephesus, it's, it's the wealth, it's the money. Because here's the promise that money makes. If you have enough of me, you will be satisfied. If you have enough of me, you'll be secure. If you have enough of me, you'll be safe. Isn't that the promise of wealth? 
Well, we'll talk about it in a second. I got a click going on on my, uh, see, anytime we want to talk about idolatry, here we go. I might have to switch it out. Is that really annoying? You can shake your head yes if you think that's really annoying. The, the, nobody's shaking there. Okay. If it happens 10 more times, we'll switch the microphones. How about that? Somebody count for me. Mary Clara, you count for me 10 times. <laughs> and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. That's his message. He's come to proclaim the gospel. And oh, by the way, when he proclaims the gospel, he exposes the idols. The, this, this, this racket y'all have got going on of bowing down to Artemis, that's no God at all. That's what Paul's message has been. And he says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be dis- deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world what does he say? Worship. Well, at least they call it a spade a spade in those days, right? At least, they get the, at least they get the vernacular right. At least they're honest enough to say, we worship money. That's what they're saying. And then Paul comes along and says, no, 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 no. These <clears throat> idols made by human hands are not idols at all. I want you to see in chapter 19, verse 12, talking about Paul Here's the ministry that's going forth in power. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them all and the evil spirits came out of them. So where you have evil spirits, let's connect some dots, you have idolatry. And when the evil spirits begin to cast out, the idolatry begins to come down. The gospel confronts idolatry, it exposes idolatry, and then ultimately, if the gospel is believed... The gospel overcomes idolatry. If idols are not being overcome, the gospel is not being believed. Now, that's what's going on in Acts 19. Let's come to our lives right now uh, and where we are. Generally speaking, generally speaking, there are four types of idols. Now, I want to talk to you for a moment about where idols get their footholds in our lives. There are four open doors, so to speak. Now, without trying to uh, go into too much detail, uh, if we took the room today and divided it into quadrants, 25% of people would sort of be here, 25% here, 25, 25. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few things. You just maybe identify where it is that you fall down because idols get their foothold in a fear that lodges deeply in your heart. So let me talk to you about the four fears that people have. And then in conclusion, we'll talk about how the gospel overcomes them. That's our last 10 minutes together. Fear number one is the fear of, of uncertainty. Just not, just not knowing what's going to come tomorrow. And so the idol that comes, now this is, this is, this is a little bit strange, is the fear of uncertainty. Actually what it leads people to do is have idols of Control, Because the fear is uncertainty, so the remedy supposedly would be to, to control things. Now, money can be an idol of control. Because if you have money, and a whole lot of it, particularly in our culture, that you're somebody. You're, you, you can kind of control the room. You can kind of control the, the opinion. 
right? I mean, uh, it goes from everything from the political arena, whoever gives the most money, has the loudest voice, has the most control, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or New York City, or Raleigh, or wherever. It's an idol of control, but the fear is, well, the fear is uncertainty. That's fear number one. You have a control idol, an idol of control, so to speak, if your greatest fear is uncertainty. Second fear, second greatest fear, is rejection. And if the greatest fear in your heart is rejection, well, the idol was going to be an idol of, of, of approval. You know what a significant idol in our culture is? Is, re, is a relationship. Whether it's in high school or you just keep going on. So many people believe if I just have a relationship, right? When you're in high school, man, if you've got a, if you've got a significant other, then you're just kind of going up the social stature, so to speak. And even, in the, even, even now as, a, as adults, we just think if we have this, if it just works out in this relationship, if I get approval from this person, the fear is, is rejection. The idol is, a, is approval. And people will go to extreme ends in order to obtain approval. People will ruin their lives in order to get approval. Now, the first two that we've gone through are, one, uncertainty, and two, rejection. In the Gospels of Luke, we'll see, this is why we're doing it right now, we'll see some people who have some serious idols of uncertainty. One of them is called the rich young ruler. He didn't want to give up everything he had. You know why? Because he would have left him uncertain about what tomorrow would hold. You give up your riches, here's where you leave yourself, totally dependent on God. <laughs> that, that was his issue. It says he could not follow Jesus because he was a man of great wealth. His God in his life was his, was his money. He couldn't leave it behind, so he couldn't follow Christ. The woman at the well, will meet her. She really believed, if I could just get the right relationship, my life will work out. All her attention, all her affection, all her allegiance was in that. Just get the right man, then my life will really work out. Two more fears. There's been uncertainty. There's been rejection. Their corresponding idols are control and approval. Next two. Next one, rather. The greatest fear is stress or demands. That's just the greatest fear. You wake up in the morning, you're just stressed out. Here's the th- got demands today. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what's coming at me. So if that's the greatest fear, the greatest idol is, is comfort. You have a comfort idol in your life. Well, money can be this as well. Or it can be a relationship again. Or it can just be entertainment as your idol. And it's overcome entertainment. We live in an entertainment oversaturated culture. If I just get to the weekend and veg out in front of the television and watch what I want to watch. Now, we don't build statues and monuments. Uh, we just have our own technology idols as we get the stuff bigger and faster and faster and bigger and clearer and high def and this, that, and the other. What are we given? Our allegiance, our affection, and our attention. And then lastly is the fear of humiliation or embarrassment. If your greatest fear is humiliation or embarrassment, your idol oftentimes will be power. just want to have the power. Nobody's going to embarrass me. Nobody's going to shame me. Nobody's going to humiliate me. I'm the one with all the power. I'm the one with all the so on and so forth. So as you think through these, let me just give you some specifics. I've already talked about money. Money can be an idol. Relationships can be an idol. Your personal health can be an idol. All your attention and allegiance is wrapped up in that. Perhaps you've been gifted with a talent and it's something that you're really, really good at. 
But if you're not careful, that can quickly become an idol. Your appearance can become an idol because if your appearance is such a way, if people approve you because of your appearance, then you don't have to face the fear of rejection. Your job can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. And one of the strongest idols in all the scripture is the idol of religion, surprisingly enough. That's the Pharisees. Now, they have an idol that they don't want to be embarrassed, particularly by Jesus, although his teachings embarrass them tremendously because they're wrong. And one of the hardest things for anybody to do in life is admit that they're wrong. And Jesus says over and over and over to the Pharisees, you're wrong, you got it wrong, you're weighing these people down, you're whitewashed tombs, you're so on and so forth. And, and, and when idols are exposed, you'll either give up the idol or you'll cling to it even more strongly. Now here's how the gospel overcomes idols. The idols are rooted in one of these four fears, control, approval, comfort, or power. The light of the gospel allows us to see the idols for what they really are. We're liberated from their lies and their power over us. Just real quick, in, in, in conclusion, wrapping up, the control idol. Greatest fear is uncertainty. Here's where the gospel comes in. You don't have control. <laughs> you don't have any control. You think you're in charge? You're not in charge. But here's the good news of the gospel. Christ has all power and all authority, and you can trust him. Now, you're not going to be captaining the ship, but you can get on the ship by faith. And that ship is unsinkable. It's not going down. The storm, as the disciples realized, it might get significant and it might fierce. And there may even be some times you think you're going to drown. But he's steadfast and he's secure. You don't, have to, you don't have to have this great fear of uncertainty. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He's already done that. You don't have to start looking for some other sign in the skies. Is everything going to be all right? Is God going to to accept me? Look to Jesus and the cross. That's your certainty. If you have a fear of uncertainty, the cross is your certainty. The next idol is approval. People bend over backwards, do crazy things, get addicted to terrible things in order to get approval by others. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Here's the gospel You don't have to earn anybody else's approval. You have been approved by God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to do anything else. In fact, the reality is you can't do anything else. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. It's by His grace. Next, there's comfort. Fear or stress or demands. So so you seek comfort and entertainment or video game, whatever it may be, that's where you seek your comfort. Here's where the gospel comes in. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. (laughs) What's he saying? Don't be stressed out. The Lord says, I have overcome the world. Here's some things on the horizon for us. Sickness, heartache, suffering, and death. Those things are coming. I'm going to stand here and act like they're not. Because tomorrow morning, somebody's going to be going through it, and, and then they say, well, that preacher's to- so totally out of, out of uh, tune with what real life is about. No, it is coming. But you don't have to be stressed about it. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we won't fear any evil. He's with us. His rod, his staff, they comfort us. He's prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. That we'll sit down and be with, with him. And then last is the... Uh, idol of humiliation or embarrassment, which leads to an idol of, of power. 
All authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus. And he didn't leave any left over for you or me. We don't have any power. We're not in charge. We're not God. But you don't have to fear being humiliated in front of him. Why? He who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By the blood of Jesus, you will not be put to shame. You will not be embarrassed. You will not be humiliated for this reason. He was humiliated. He was put to open shame. He was crucified, tore his clothes off, put him publicly for everybody to see. Crucified for you. So the gospel, if it's really going to be proclaimed, it's going to confront idols. It's going to expose idols. And also, if the gospel is believed, it's going to defeat idols. I want to put a picture up on the screen for you. It's an artist's rendering of the Temple of Artemis. That's what it looked like. If you got in your time machine and go back to 68 AD when Paul travels to Ephesus and begins to proclaim the gospel in Ephesus, that's what was there. And the, and the court, courtyards would be flooded with people, bringing their money, bringing their children. They weren't snapping pictures again, but mentally they were. We've been here, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Why did we have to do an artist rendering? Because go to the next picture. That's what it looks like today. Get on an airplane, go to Ephesus. That's the temple of Artemis. And I just want you to know that's what happens with all idolatry. It makes promises that it cannot keep and over the course of time proves to be powerless. Now, any time that something that is powerless seeks to have authority and power in your life, that's an idol. And, and that's the end of it. I just want you to see it. Just a few rocks scattered in the outskirts of Ephesus that a few people go to. And it's not nearly the ancient wonder of the world that it was. The danger for the people of Ephesus was that they were investing their life in one of the seven ancient wonders of the world and not investing their life in the ancient of days, the Lord Jesus. But just so in in conclusion, as we wrap up, verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. It happens in riots and mob scenes sometimes. A couple of guys just throw some broken glass and bottles and all of a sudden, oh, here's a whole crowd. What are y'all fighting against? We don't know. We just joined in. Now some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, I mean, it's chaos out there, right? Wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When their idols are confronted, their response is violence, anger, hostility. That's the natural response for us. The supernatural response is, what are we talking about? Great as Artemis? Here's where the light of the gospel would have to come in. The light of the gospel would shine on that meteor that fell from the sky and say, that's no God at all. And then instead of looking at the meteor that fell from the sky, you lift your eye up to the sky where the heavens declare the glory 
<laughs> the glory of God. Idolatry keeps saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Jesus says, look at me, look at me, look at me. So we'll spend our life, either the anthem will be great as Artemis of the Ephesians, or whatever it is that your idol is, or our anthem will be great as the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. I invite you to bow your heads with me in a response and a time of invitation. Our proclamation is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is worthy of all your allegiance, all your affection, all your attention. He's greater than any idol, be it an idol of of money, of power, of control, of rooted in fear. The idolatry is rooted in fear. The gospel is rooted in faith. One of those will be the overarching theme of, of our lives. So simply as a time of invitation, the question to respond to is is fairly straightforward and simple. And that is, is there an idol in your life? And if by the grace of God, his spirit draws near to you and exposes one, probably the quick reaction would be like the Ephesians, anger or hostility or go away. But it's a spiritually deadly And just as a physician may come along and say, there's something that needs to be removed from your body, Luke, the physician through Acts, is instructing us there may be something that needs, by God's grace, to be removed from the soul. Father, I pray on this matter of idolatry that you would deal with us in accordance with the Scripture. If there is something that's demanding our utmost, our allegiance and affection and attention, Lord, would you reveal it to us? And also by your grace, would you help us to understand that these idols are ultimately destructive and that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has already guaranteed whatever it is we're seeking to have satisfied by the idol and also that the idol will never deliver deliver on its empty promises. Do this for the glorious name of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.